السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So last week we were um, discussing the istiadah we still on the istiadah أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم and we were going through the word for word meaning of the istiadah so we're going through the details of the different words that are that, that uh, are found in the isti'adah, the word shaitan, the descriptions that Allah Azza wa gives to shaitan generally in the Qur'an, and obviously in the isti'adah you have the word ar-rajim, uh, the one who is outcast, the one who, the one who is accursed, uh, these words that you find within the isti'adah. And then we kind of finished on um, going or started speaking about some of the fiqh issues or some of the rulings concerning the isti'adah in terms of what some of the scholars discussed. Um, so inshallah I think what we'll do is we'll recap where we kind of left off last week so we'll, we, we kind of started on one of the first issues uh, I think we'll go over that again and then inshallah we'll, we'll carry on from there so the first issue that the scholars um, bring up with regards to isti'adah one of the issues that they bring up there's not necessarily an order to it but one of the first issues that you'll come across in the books of tafsir also which is why we're discussing it but also in the books of fiqh is when is the isti'adah said, when it comes to the recitation of the Qur'an, reading of the Qur'an, when is the isti'adah read? So some of the scholars took the verse of the Qur'an, in um, the verse that, that is the basis of the isti'adah, فَإِذَا قَرَأْتَ الْقُرْآنَ فَاسْتَعِذْ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ right? The verse of Surah Al-Nahl, if you're reading the Qur'an, or if you read the Qur'an, then seek refuge in Allah from shaitan the accursed. Some of the scholars took that verse literally. And they said that the fa, fa'idha qara'tan, right? If you are going to. They said that the fa means ta'qib, it means after. So basically the meaning of the verse is, once you've read the Qur'an, then seek refuge in Allah from shaitan the accursed. Right? Meaning once you've finished reading the Qur'an. And this is um, an opinion, as we said last week, it's mentioned uh, among some of the scholars, like Muhammad ibn Sirin, Rahimahullah, Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, Dawood al-Zahiri. And there is even a narration of Abu Huraira, radiyallahu that he, this was the opinion that he followed, even though some of the scholars, the muhaqqiqeen, the muhaqqiqeen, this word muhaqqiq means the, the verifiers, right? The scholars who came generations afterwards, and they would go through the statements of the companions and the scholars, and they would edit and verify them. Did they actually say what some of the scholars attributed to them? Or was it just an error, right? Was it just a mistake? So those scholars who did this, they're known as the muhaqqiqin. Some of them said that it's not actually the opinion of Abu Huraira, that it is gharib, it is peculiar to say that this was the, the opinion of Abu Huraira. Either way, even if it's not the opinion of Abu Huraira, there were some heavyweight scholars and heavyweight ulama behind this opinion. Right? So for example, Muhammad ibn Sirin. Muhammad ibn Sirin rahimahullah, is one of the scholars of the tabi'in. It's a famous name, a name that you've probably heard of many times, right? He's one of the students of the companions. And his main teacher from amongst the companions was Anas ibn Malik, radiyallahu Anas ibn Malik, radiyallahu And he met other companions and he heard from other companions as well. 
Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu used to love Ibn Sirin so much and he had so much respect for him, for his scholarship, for his piety, for his character, that at the time of or Anas ibn Malik when he wrote his will, his final testament, he wrote within it that I want Ibn Sirin to wash my body when I pass away and I want him to lead my janazah. Okay? And that's an honor, right? For any person to be asked to do that, for any of the companions of the Prophet wasallam, it's an honor. And as we know, Anas ibn Malik was one of the final companions to pass away, one of the latter companions in terms of their deaths. He was one of the last few remaining at that time. And it just so happened when Ibn Sirin, rahimahullah, when Anas ibn Malik passed away, Ibn Sirin was in prison. He was in prison. And he was in prison because he was in debt. He was in severe debt and he wasn't able to pay back the debt. And under Islamic law, if you're unable to pay back the debt, then the person that you owe that money to has the right to ask the judge to imprison you. Might imprison you. So Ibn Sirin was in that situation. He borrowed money, a great sum of money, and then he lost out for one reason or another. And it's a whole long story that we don't need to go into. But the point is that he was unable to pay back his loan. And because he was unable to pay back his loan, the person whose right it was, the money, the person that he borrowed it from, he said, I want him in prison, jailed. So Ibn Sirin, rahimahullah, and you can imagine like this amazing, illustrious scholar of Islam, known for hadith, known for tafsir, known for fiqh, right? He's like one of the giants of that generation, and he's in prison. And whilst he was in prison, Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu passed away. So when they read the will of Anas ibn Malik and they read his final, you know, like his wasiyah, which is his final requests, they read within it that he wanted Anas ibn Malik to come and to wash him and to shroud him and to lead his janazah. But there's a problem now, right? Because he's in prison. And so they had to go to the governor and request from him special permission that Anas ibn Malik, Ibn Sirin, rahimahullah, be allowed to come out and to wash and shroud the body and the governor agreed to do so. Right? And what's really amazing is in one of those narrations of that story, Ibn Sirin, uh, rahimahullah, he said that I know which sin it was that landed me in jail. Right? The scholars of that era, I mean, their sins were so few and far between that sometimes when they had a calamity or a hardship strike them, they used to be able to pinpoint what it was that they did. And because of that, that's why Allah Azza wa tested me in this way. Right? I mean, we'd, be, we'd struggle to do that, right? Because subhanAllah, we have so many sins. Which one like, equates to what? Allah, Allah knows best. But they were able to do that. He said that I, Ibn Sirin said, many years ago, I saw a man walking down the street and I said to him, Ya Muflis, you're bankrupt. Right? I called him destitute. Just call him like a bankrupt. And now Allah has tested me with that same thing. Right now he's bankrupt, he's destitute, he's impoverished, he's in debt, doesn't have any money to take himself out of that situation. But the point is that Ibn Sirin rahimahullah came and he led the janazah of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu. So these were some of the great scholars of that era. They used to take this verse literally. So that if you read the Qur'an and once you finish the Qur'an, or your recitation of the Qur'an, your reading of the Qur'an, the passage that you're reading, then you say, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم. Ar-Razi in his tafsir, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah in his tafsir, they say that the reason that they gave for this, right, the reasoning behind this, or the reasoning for their understanding of the verse in this way, was that they said it's because to stop yourself from feeling proud and arrogant after doing a good deed. So just as you do a good deed, as we know, you do a good deed, there's two elements to a good deed. One is doing the actual deed, and the second part of that deed is having it accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
So you can pray, we just prayed Salatul Maghrib now. And everyone that's standing in the rows and they prayed the Salah, they prayed it. Meaning the obligation was lifted from our shoulders. But did Allah Azza wa accept our Salah or not? We don't know. Right? No one can have that cast iron guarantee that Allah Azza wa accepted our deeds. What is one of the reasons why the, the deeds may not have been accepted, why they may have been rejected? Because a person has arrogance. Or they presume upon Allah that he accepted their deeds. Or because of some type of kibr, right? some type of pride within their heart. Oh, I prayed and there's other people that didn't pray, right? Or I was praying and the guy next to me was fidgeting, so therefore I'm sure my prayer was better than his prayer. Whatever logic that shaitan brings into our minds, and look at how shaitan, and we're talking about isti'adha, shaitan even in good deeds will come, and he'll like plant a seed of doubt, or he'll make some, something, some thought that he plants within us, that then causes us to sin or to take what the good that we did and diminish it. So anyway, the point is here, that those scholars said, therefore you remove that type of pride from you, right? That arrogance, that haughtiness from your heart, because you ask Allah Azza wa to preserve your good deeds, right? That's the, um, the, the statement of Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, and others. And that's what they said. The reasoning is behind that opinion. But the opinion of the majority of the scholars, right? The vast majority of the scholars of Islam is that the either in the verse, فَإِذَا قَرَأْتَ when you read the Qur'an, means before you read the Qur'an. And that's very common in the Arabic language, the word ida, which literally translated means when. Ida can be used with different meanings depending on the context. One of those meanings is before. As you're about to embark upon, right? As you're about to begin, then read, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajim. And that's also very common in the Qur'an. Allah Azza wa for example, says in... Um, in the verse in Budu, Ya ladina amanu ida kumtum ila salah. Or you who believe, when you stand for the prayer, then make wudu. Right? Then Allah says, wash your hands and wash your face and so on and so forth. When you're going to stand for the prayer, then do so. Right? Obviously, it doesn't mean after you finish the prayer, because the wudu has to be done before the prayer. Right? So the meaning is either meaning when you're about to stand for the prayer, when you're ready to stand for the prayer, make sure that you've done wudu. Right? And Allah says in another verse in the Quran, وَإِذَا قُلْتُمْ فَعْدِلُوا When you speak, then be just. Obviously it doesn't mean that after you've spoken, be just, right? Because that doesn't make any sense. Right? So therefore the meaning is what? Before you speak, make sure that you speak with justice. Right? You speak in honesty, with integrity, truthfulness, and so on. And another third example of that is the verse of, um, of hijab. When it came to the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or radiyallahu anhun, وَإِذَا سَأَلْتُمُوهُنَّ مَتَاعًا فَاسْأَلُوهُنَّ مِنْ وَرَاءِ حِجَابٍ When you want to seek something from them or ask them something, then ask them from behind a curtain, behind a veil. Right? So when the companions used to come, or the students of the companions used to come, and they wanted to speak to Aisha radiyallahu anha, one of the other mothers of the believers, out of respect for them, honor, honoring them, they would speak to them behind the curtain, right? So Aisha radiallahu anha would teach, and she would have many companions, many men who would come, and she would narrate hadith to them, and she would teach them, and she was one of the most prolific narrators of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But she would have a curtain or a veil between her and those men because of this verse, right? And obviously the meaning of the verse is not that, you know, once you've asked your question, then put the hijab down. Obviously the meaning is that before you ask the question, make sure that there is a curtain and a veil, right? And so that's how the majority of the scholars understood the isti'adah. 
And even logically it makes sense that when you're about to read the Qur'an, you want Allah Azza wa to remove from you shaitan, right? And all of his, you know, uh, whisperings and temptations and so on and so forth. And all of that explanation that we've given over the last couple of weeks. So that was the opinion of the majority of the scholars of Islam. And that is the stronger opinion Allah Azza wa knows best. And it's even been reported among some scholars that they said you do both. Start off with the isti'adha, finish with the isti'adha. Right? So you start off with a'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim and you finish with a'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim But the stronger opinion out of those is the opinion that says that you just do it at the beginning or before you're about to begin the recitation of the Qur'an. Is that clear? Any questions about that? Any... Anything they want to ask? Yeah, Kaka? So we're going to come on to this, right? So Kaka's asking, what if you're, that's okay if it's at the beginning of a surah, what if you're midway, right? Then what do you start with and what don't you start with? That's going to, we're going to, don't jump the gun. We're going to, we're going to do that, inshallah. We're taking our time here, right? <laughs> like, why are you rushing? Yeah. Um, so he, uh, the question is, who said you do both? And I remember reading it, but I don't remember who now. Um, but it is, it is mentioned that some of the scholars said to just do both. And the reason why some of the scholars do that, one, one thing you'll find is when there's differences of opinion in terms of fiqh issues, one of the things that certain scholars like to do is try to join between the opinions, right? right? Try to reconcile. And it is like a, an a approach of usul al-fiqh, that when you have differing opinions among scholars, if you can reconcile between them, then you should do so, right? Because you avoid conflict, you avoid contradiction. And so therefore, some of the scholars said that, but it was only like one name or two names at most that said that, I don't remember exactly who. Um, but, but you will find them, for example, if you go back to Tabari's tafsir, Ibn Kathir, and so on, they go through this whole issue in, in a lot of detail, and Allah knows best. Any questions from sisters or, yeah? The Bismillah? We're not anywhere near the Bismillah. The Isti'adha. The Isti'adha is it's mentioned in a few surahs. It's mentioned in Surah Al-Araf. It's mentioned in Surah Al-Nahl. Um, I don't have the verse numbers. <coughs> not Dr. Zakim, like I can't do the whole. Um, but, but we mentioned them before, inshallah. And they're in the notes, I think. So the notes, if you go into the portal, uh, you'll find them in the notes. 98, Surah Al-Nahl, verse 98. And Surah Al-A'raf is like 200 and something. Something like that, anyway. Yeah. Is there anything from the Sunnah which uh, is an example where a prophet used the Isfiyadah for uh, recitation or for anything like that? Is there any example from the Sunnah in which the Prophet used the Isfiyadah before recitation of the Quran? Um, yeah, there is. But we'll come on to that as well. So, um, actually... Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to that as well, inshallah. There's a question online. How do you balance between simply presuming upon Allah that He has accepted the deed and having Husnavan Billah? Okay. So, how do you combine? How do you balance? Or how do you balance between uh, not being arrogant and assuming that Allah has accepted your deed and between having good thoughts of Allah and thinking good of Allah that He has accepted your deed, right? And that's why the scholars used to say that the believer is in between the two wings of hope and fear. Right? That's what that means. You hope in Allah's mercy that he accepts the good deeds, that if you're sincere and you did the action, 
in the way that it should have been performed, that Allah Azza wa will accept the good deed. But at the same time, you're fearful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may reject that deed because only Allah knows the situation or the state of our hearts and our piety at the time of that good deed. And that's where you have those like statements from Umar radiallahu anhu. Umar used to say, radiallahu anhu, that if I knew that Allah had only accepted one of my deeds, I would place all of my hope in it. Right? And that's what he's saying because he feared that Allah may have rejected some of those deeds. Right? And you have statements like from Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, the companions, that they would rather be like a branch or a, a bark of a tree or something else than be a human because the tree is not going to be held to account. Right? There's no punishment for the tree. And so they used to say these statements are said because they were fearful and these were obviously the greatest companions and the most knowledgeable and the most pious and the most righteous. But they had that fear within them or that, you know, that, that kind of like sense that maybe Allah doesn't accept some of these deeds or hasn't accepted some of those deeds. And that was from their humbleness and humility and not taking for granted what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to them in terms of favor and blessings. Um, and that's important, right? So you have, you're constantly in between those two things. You hope in Allah's reward, and if you did good, that Allah will reward you. But at the same time, you don't take it for granted, because if you take it for granted, you become lax, right? That's where shaitan comes in and says, oh, no, but you, you know, you've already prayed, and it's already been accepted. Or, you know, for example, that whole thing, right? I'll sin, and then I'll do a good deed, and then wipe the sin away. Right? That's a very common ploy of shaitan, right? Oh, it's okay, do the sin, but Allah tells us in the Quran, if you follow up a bad deed with a good deed, then the bad deeds wiped away, right? But what guarantee do you have that Allah accepts that, that good deed, right? That only works if Allah accepts the good deed. So therefore, when shaitan comes and he uses those types of whisperings, again, it's that type of pride, right? That type of haughtiness, right? Like shaitan had Iblis, that just because his origins were better, therefore, by necessity, he is better than everything else that Allah creates. And that's not how it works, right? And so therefore, those types of presumptions, those types of assumptions, they are dangerous. Okay, let's carry on, inshallah. The second issue with regards to the isti'adah is its ruling. Is it wajib? Or is it recommended? So for example, if you're going to start reading the Qur'an now, right? Just say right now, we want to start reading the Qur'an. Surah Baqarah, Ali Imran, any surah of the Qur'an. Must you recite the isti'adah first? Is it an obligation? And when we say obligation in terms of Islamic fiqh, what that means is that if you don't do it, what happens? You're sinful. Right? If you don't do it, you're going to be sinful. It's haram upon you to read the Qur'an without reading isti'ala. That's what that means. Obligation. Or is it recommended? What does recommended mean? It means that you'll be rewarded if you do it, but if you don't do it, there's no sin. Right? And that's like generally in the salah, Outside of the salah, whenever you read in the Quran, must you say before you begin, A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim Is it a must or not a must? So the scholars differed over this issue into two opinions. The first opinion is that it is wajib. It is an obligation. And those scholars who held this said that in the prayer or outside of the prayer, whenever you're going to read the Quran, you must always begin with the isti'adha. Right, so the first thing you start with is with what? A'udhu billahi min shaitanir rajim. And this was the opinion of some of the noteworthy scholars of the past. From amongst them was Ata. Ata, rahimahullah. Ata is one of the scholars of the Tabi'een from the students of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, one of the great scholars of Tafsir. He's a name that we're going to come across many, many times. Ata was a, a free slave. He was a slave that was emancipated. 
and he became from the closest students of Ibn Abbas عنهم, and stood with him and he learned tafsir and he became a great scholar and he became so well known for his scholarship that he was known as the Mufti of Mecca right in his time obviously in his time during the, the, the era of the, of the Tabi'een he was known as the Mufti of Mecca to the extent that, you know, like in Hajj, when everyone used to gather together, and you have like literally hundreds or not thousands of scholars coming for Hajj annually, the Khalifa used to announce, no one should give fatwa in Hajj except Ata. He's the Mufti of Mecca. So obviously, like, you know, in Hajj, even now, you know, every group has a sheikh that they take because there's so many issues in Hajj, right? People make mistakes. People don't know what's going on. People, like, miss out things and do things incorrectly and so on. And so you, you often find people giving fatwa. And because you can imagine in the time of the Tabi'een, you have literally thousands of amazing scholars. Right? We're not just talking about anyone and everyone. We have some serious heavyweight names. And you can imagine right, people giving different fatwas, different opinions, and just causing like confusion. So the, 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 the Khalifa of that time, or the governor of Mecca, he made an edict. He gave like a ruling. No one should give fatwa in Hajj except for Ata. Right? And Ata is an amazing person. If you read his biography, he's amazing. There's a story of Ata, uh, rahimahullah, he was once in the masjid praying. Right? And the Khalifa, this is the Umayyad dynasty, right? the Khalifa took his two sons and he said, let's go to Ata because I want you to study with him. I want you to learn from him. Right? And you know the, the Khulafa of that time, you know, despite their weaknesses and the mistakes that they made, they had this love for Islam, generally speaking, and they had this thing about knowledge, right? They used to honor the scholars and so on, and they wanted their children to at least have a level of scholarship, a level of you know, like understanding and knowing Islam. So he takes his two sons and he wants to go and learn from Ata. They go into the masjid and they find that Ata is praying. He's praying nafil prayers, right? It's in the middle of the morning, just praying nafil prayers. And the Khalifa being the Khalifa, Right? knew that if he had said to Ata, you come to my palace and teach my children, Ata would have said no. Right? The student goes to the teacher, the teacher doesn't go to the student. So he was trying to preempt this by going to the masjid himself with his sons. And he comes and Ata is praying. And he's praying his nafil prayer. And the nafil you know, like of the salaf was long. Right? It's not like you know, two minutes and you're done. He's literally like taking a long time. So the Khalifa said to his sons, wait here. Let me go and walk past him, right, by his side, let me walk in front of him, so he can see in the corner of his eye that the Khalifa is here, and then he'll speed up his prayer, right, he'll quicken up, he'll hasten, he'll finish the prayer, and then he'll come and deal with us, right, because, you know, we're standing at the back, he's at the front, he doesn't even know we're here, okay, so the Khalifa goes and he walks towards the front of the masjid, so Ata can see in the corner of his eye, out of the corner of his eye, that the Khalifa is in the masjid waiting for him, and then he goes back. But Ata doesn't care, right? He's busy, he's praying, and he finishes his salah, and then he stands up and starts again, right? She just gets up and starts again. And then when he's finished, what he's finished praying, right? What he's going to normally pray, when he's finished with his, with his nawafil, and he's finished doing what he was going to do, then he turns around and he goes to the Khalifa and he gives him salams, and he says, how can I help you? So he says that I bought my sons. The Khalifa says, I bought my sons because they have questions and they want to learn about certain issues and so on. So Ata sits with them and he teaches them what they wanted to know, answers their questions, deals with them. And then the Khalifa at the end, he says to him, Oh Ata, tell me what I can do for you, right? You did this for us, tell me what I can do for you. Right? And that was very common, the Khulafa, the governors and so on. They would honor people, right? They would honor poets, they would honor scholars. They would... People came, you know, what do you need, right? Can I help you financially? Is there a favor that I can do for you? And so on. 
So Ata said to the Khalifa, I feel embarrassed standing in the house of Allah that I should ask from other than Allah. I feel embarrassed standing in the house of Allah that I should ask from other than Allah. So the Khalifa is like a slap down. But the Khalifa like, is like, okay, no problem. And then he's like, let's walk outside. Walk with me, right? Um, we're leaving, walk with me. So he makes Ata walk with him until he comes outside of the masjid. And then he says to Ata, now we're outside of the house of Allah, now ask. Right? Now we're outside the house of Allah, now ask me, tell me what you need. So Ata says to him, I feel embarrassed that I was just in the house of Allah, and now I should ask from other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he turned around, went back in, and he started praying. The Khalifa turned to his sons and he said, I've never been humiliated like this before in my life. Right? Never been humiliated like this before. Because this is how the scholars were. They had this izzah and they had this like the knowledge was more important to them than anything else. So the point is that Ata is like a heavyweight name. Right? So he was of this opinion. And by the way, Ata has both opinions. Right? So that doesn't really help. But he has both opinions that this ta'adha is obligatory and that it's recommended. He has both narrations are mentioned from Ata, rahimahullah. But the opinion that it is wajib is also mentioned from the Zahiri school of thought or school of law. Ibn Hazm rahimahullah in his book Al-Muhalla says that it is also wajib. And the reason why they say it's wajib, their proof is that they're taking the apparent meaning of the verse. Right? Allah says that when you're about to read the Quran, make the isti'adha. Right? Say, A'udhu billahi min shaytan rajim And that's a command. Right? And when Allah commands something, what does that mean? means it's obligatory, right? Generally speaking, right? When Allah commands something in the Quran, when Allah says pray, doesn't mean if you want to pray, pray, right? It means pray, you have to pray, right? Give zakah means you have to give zakah, right? Make hajj means you have to make hajj. So the, the obligatory order, the command of Allah Azza wa denotes an obligation. So that's the opinion of those scholars. The vast majority of the scholars of Islam though, from amongst the companions and after the companions, were of the opinion that it is mustahab. It is recommended. So, based on that second opinion, if you were to read the Quran without making this ti'adah, so you're just sitting here now and you say, Alif la mim, al kitab la riba fi, right? Or in the middle of the, of the surah, you just start off, right? Ya ladina amanu ida Any verse of the Quran, you can just start to read it without this ti'adah and you're not sinful. It's perfectly allowed. However, they said that it is better, more rewarding closer to the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, that you read the isti'adha before you start recitation. Right? And this is the opinion that the Qurra have. Right? The Qurra are the, the, the scholars of the Qur'an recitation. Right? They have this opinion that you should, it is highly recommended that you always begin with the isti'adha. Whether at the beginning of the surah or whether at, in the middle of the surah. You always begin with the isti'adha. And this was the opinion, the opinion that it is recommended. It's the opinion of companions like Ibn Umar, radiallahu an, Abu Huraira. Uh, the opinion of many of the tabi'een, Ata again, has this opinion. Al-Hassan al-Basri, Ibn Sirin, Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, al-Awza'i, al-Thawri, rahimahumullah. And it is the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Ahmad, and the majority of the Shafi'iyyah. Right? Imam Shafi'i and his follows the scholars of his method. So the vast majority of the scholars of Islam hold this opinion. Right? They hold this opinion. One name that isn't mentioned here amongst the four Imams is whose name? Imam Malik. Right? And there's a reason for that, but we'll discuss that in a short while. So they said that it is, um, it is recommended. Mustahab. Why is it mustahab? So what, why, why did they take that verse of the Quran and not take it literally? 
Allah Azza wa Jalla says, when you read the Quran, say, "A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim and that's a command. Why do they say that that command is an obligatory but it is recommended? Okay, because it's an issue of etiquette. Uh, okay, but you still have the verse, right? So, in order for right, the verse not to be taken literally as a command that denotes obligation, what do you need? You need another evidence, right? You need a hadith, you need something else to show you that actually it's not like that, right? So, for example, let me give you an example. Allah in the Quran, uh, when He speaks about ihram, in the state of ihram, one of the things that you can't do is hunt. Right? Is hunt, right? So you can't hunt. You can't hunt game. Then Allah says, وَإِذَا حَلَلْتُمْ فَاسْطَادُ But when you come out of the state of ihram, then go and hunt. And it's a command. Go and hunt. And it's a command. So all of you that have done Umrah and Hajj and so on, when you came out of ihram, how many of you were hunting? Right? No one goes hunting. Why? So it's a command from Allah, go and hunt, but then none of us went and hunt. Right? No, no one goes hunting. How do you take that verse that apparently seems to say that it's obligatory to go and hunt and say actually it doesn't mean go and hunt, it means something else? It's taken, no, but where's it taken from? How do we make that leap? We make that leap because of another evidence, right? And in this case the evidence would be the hadith, right? The Prophet never hunted after coming out of the state of Ihram. He made Umrah, he made Hajj, didn't go and hunt. Right? The companions didn't go and hunt. Which shows what then? Shows that that verse isn't literal, but what it means is that now you're out of the state of Ihram, it's allowed for you to go hunting again. And from the eloquence of the Arabic language, Allah said it in a command form to show you that now it's halal, right? To that extent, right? It's like from the eloquence of the Arabic language. So therefore you, and that's why it's so important when you come and study like these issues, Never take a verse or a hadith in isolation, right? You have to bring everything together and you have to take a comprehensive overview. So likewise, the same here, right? So when the Prophet ﷺ, often when he would say or read the Qur'an or write down verses of the Qur'an or when he was giving a khutbah or when he would be speaking and he would say the, read the Qur'an, there are many instances in the sunnah where he wouldn't begin with isti'adha. He wouldn't say, A'udhu Billahi Shaitan Ar-Rajim. Sometimes he would say, Bismillah, it was the beginning of the surah. Or sometimes he would just read the verse. And he wouldn't say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Ar-Rajim. And you will find that many. If you go to any hadith book and you look at his, the way the Prophet used to mention verses of the Qur'an, you will find this very common. Okay? And so therefore that shows, and this is why the vast majority of the scholars hold this opinion, because the general sunnah shows that the Prophet never used to make the isti'adha each and every single time. So therefore, it is recommended, right? And some of the scholars, the way that they reconcile between those two is that they said if it's the odd verse, right, you're just the odd verse that you're reading, you don't have to make the isti'adha. But if you're not going to sit down and read the Qur'an for five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, right, you're going to do uh, some recitation of the Qur'an, then it's recommended for you to make the isti'adha. But if I'm like, for example, giving a lecture here, and I'm going to read, you know, a verse because it's part of the lesson or it's part of... I don't have to say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Ar-Rajim each and every single time. Okay? And so that's how, like, the scholars um, somewhat reconcile between the two. And this is, you know, like some of the scholars, because there's only, like, one or two names in the history of Islamic scholarship that said that it is wajib to make the isti'adha, some of the scholars said that there is ijma' that it is mustahab. Ijma' means consensus. 
Now, ijma' means that the scholars have unanimously agreed on a certain position. And it is one of the strongest evidences in Islam. Because it means that all of the Muslims have agreed on a point. If the Muslims, all of the scholars, rather not every Muslim, but all of the scholars agree on a single point, it means that it is one of the strongest evidences in our religion. So Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, he said that there is ijma' that it is mustahab. Ijma' consensus of the scholars that the isti'adah, saying, A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim is recommended. Right? And likewise, uh, Imam al-Sarqsi, who is one of the great scholars of the... Um, of the Hanafi madhab, he said after mentioning the Ata, Rahimahullah, said that it is wajib, obligatory, he said this goes against the ijma' of the Salaf. He said that his opinion goes against the ijma' of the Salaf, and Ata, as we said, has both opinions narrated from him. Right? So it's as if Imam al-Sarqsi said that his other opinion shouldn't be counted. Al-Imam ibn Atiyah, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, so tafsir ibn Atiyah is another famous classical work of tafsir, he also said that there is ijma' Right? And Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, didn't say that there was ijma' but he said that the vast majority of scholars said that it is mustahab. Right? It is recommended that you make the isti'adha, but it is not something which, um, which you have to do. It's not an obligation. Either way though, it's something that you should do. Right? So especially if you're going to sit down and read some Qur'an, it is something that you should do and you should be in the habit of doing. And if you have children and they're going to be reading the Qur'an, it's something that you should get them into the habit of doing. Irrespective of the fact that whether it's sinful or not sinful, just because of the blessing of that wording, right? So we've spent like, this is the third week and we're doing isti'adha. And we've spoken so much about the meaning and its importance and how, how, like, uh, how much of a pivotal role it should play within our lives. So therefore, it's something that we should be like, accustomed to doing, right? It's something that we want our children to be accustomed to doing, that when they're reading the Qur'an, they're making this isti'adha. And, and inshallah, like... If we get there, we're going to speak about the different instances in which the Prophet ﷺ recommended seeking refuge in Allah, right? seeking Allah's protection from shaitan and so on. And so therefore, that's something also which I think is important. So that brings us on to another issue. And that issue is... Yeah. Okay, any questions? Okay, fine, we'll do questions. Okay, so is there isti'adha in Surah At-Tawbah? So this is kind of like linked to the, the Basmala issue, right? So when you say Bismillah rahman rahim at the beginning of every surah, the exception to that is Surah At-Tawbah, right? Also known as Surah Bara. But yes, the isti'adha is made. So the isti'adha is always made. So whether it's at the beginning of a surah, midway of a surah. So if you're going to start off by reading Surah At-Tawbah, you would say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitanir Rajeem, Bara'atun Min Allahi Wa Rasulih. Right? And you start off. Right? And that's the opinion of the scholars, and it's the opinion of the Qurra. Right? When I say Qurra, you guys know what I mean by Qurra? Right? I don't mean like, you know, like uh, when I say reciters, I don't mean like Ajami and Shatri and these guys. What I'm talking about is like the classical scholars who are the imma, the leaders or the imams of Qur'an, right? and Qira'at, and how its recitation should be done. And they took that recitation from the companions of the Prophet. Some obviously took it from the Prophet wasallam, right? And they are the ones that we attribute our rules of tajweed to, right? So when we say we're reading in warsh, or we're reading on hafs, or we're reading, you know, in any qira'ah, this is the, what we're talking about. We're talking about the qurra, right? Imam al-Shatibi, Abu Amr al-Dani that we mentioned last week. And before them, right? They're later scholars of qira'at, but the earliest scholars, right? Going all the way back to the likes of the tabi'een and the teachers from amongst the, the companions. That's what we mean by, by when we say Qur'an, right? 
in our modern day like language, Qur'an means any recite of the Qur'an, right? Everyone's a Qari, right? You go to your masjid and the Imam's a Qari and you know, everyone online's a Qari, lots of Qaris now. But when we're speaking in like Qur'anic sciences and we're speaking about tafsir and we say Qur'an, we're talking about the Imams. Right? We're talking about the Imams that lived like well over a thousand years ago and how they would recite the Qur'an. And that's why when you're reading the Qur'an to a sheikh who gives you an ijazah, right, which is the, the chain of narration from you all the way back to the Prophet you will read in the Qur'an according to that level and that standard of qira, right? So it's, it's something which is preserved from generation to generation. So they were of the opinion that you should read the uh, isti'adah for Surah Tawbah. Um, and likewise at the beginning or at the end or in the middle of any recitation, the isti'adah is always done. As opposed to the basmala, right? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which we'll come on to um, probably next, next week. But Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim is only at the beginning of the surah. Right? It's only at the beginning of the surah. Can you read it midway? Yes, you can read it midway. Like there's... I don't think that it's haram to read it midway, but it's not generally the thing that is done, right? Because Allah doesn't say you read the basmala, right? He says read the isti'adha. And so therefore the recitation, uh, you proceed it with the isti'adha and not necessarily the basmala unless it's the beginning of the surah. Any other questions? Is it required to read the isti'adha when you're reading the translation? Is it required to read the isti'adha when you're reading the translation? No. Why? Because the translation isn't the Qur'an. <coughs> the translation of the meanings of the Qur'an is not the Qur'an. Right? It's like reading a, an Islamic book. Right? If you pick up Fath al-Bari, Sahih bukhari Tafsir ibn Kathir, it's not the Qur'an. You don't have to start by saying, A'udhu Billahi min Shaitan Rajim. You can if you want to, but it's not something which you have to do. Okay. Can we move on? Okay. Any, sister, any questions? Okay. So, the next issue is, in Salah, if we're reading A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajim before recitation, right? So we have of this opinion that it's now recommended. Before you start, you say A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajim. In the Salah, is that done in every single rak'ah or only once at the beginning of the Salah? So for example, we uh, read Salat Al-Maghrib, right? And we're going to read Salat Al-Isha, inshaAllah. So when you say Allahu Akbar, Right at the beginning of the salah, and you start with your dua, right? Allahumma ba'id bayni wa bayna khataya, or Subhanakallahumma bihamdi, whichever dua that you're beginning with. And then you say, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim. Bismillahirrahman ar-rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Right? And then you carry on with Surah Fatiha, and then you read another surah, and then you go into Ruku' out of Ruku' Sajda, you know, you guys know, you follow, right? You go, you go through the first rak'ah, and then you stand up to the second rak'ah. What do you start with? That's the question. Right? That's the mas'ala. Do you start with A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajim again, Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillah, or do you just say Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Right? So this is another issue with regards to the isti'adah. The vast majority of the scholars of Islam are of the opinion that in the salah, your recitation of the Qur'an is one. It's all one recitation. Which therefore means what do you do with isti'adah? You only make the isti'adha once. Right? So that's the opinion of the majority of the scholars. Ata, al-Hasan al-Basri, Imam al-Nakha'i, al-Thawri, Ibn Sirin, Tawus, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam al-Shafi'i, Imam Ahmad, and one of his, uh, one of his narrations from Imam Ahmad, rahimahumullah, all of them said that you just say, A'udhu Billahi min shaitan al-Rajim at the beginning of the salah. 
and you don't need to repeat it. So the second rak'ah, you don't have to say it again. The third rak'ah, you don't have to say it again. If there's a fourth rak'ah, you don't have to say it again. Once is enough for the whole salah. And they base that on, um, on two things. Number one, they said that the salah is all one dhikr. Right? So even when you're not reading Quran, what are you doing? You're making dhikr of Allah, right? You're saying Allahu Akbar, you're saying Subhana Rabbil Azim, you're saying Subhana Rabbil A'la, you're making dua to Allah, it is dhikr. The isti'adha they said is when you break the recitation of the Quran with worldly issues, right? So if you're reading the Quran and then you get up to go to the bathroom, Azakumullah, you go and have a meal, you go out with your friends, you get a phone call and you're on there for half an hour, you're on your emails and so on, and then you come back to the Quran, now you begin with the isti'adha again. Because you broke it up with something else, right? Not remembering Allah. You did something else. But if the whole thing is just remembrance of Allah, you're just making dhikr, you're reading Quran, you're making dua, whatever else it is, and then you come back to Quran, you don't have to make the isti'adha again. Right? That's the first reasoning that they gave. The second reasoning, which is stronger, is based on the hadith. The hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. And he said that the Prophet wasallam, when he would stand up for the second rak'ah in the salah, he wouldn't pause, but he would begin recitation. He wouldn't pause. Meaning what? That he wouldn't stay silent. Right? So you know when you first start salah, the imam says, Allahu Akbar, he pauses. Right? There's a pause because he's making the opening dua, and everyone else is making the opening dua. That's a pause. So in the hadith of Abu Hurairah, this hadith is in... Sahih Muslim, hadith in Sahih Muslim, he said that when he would stand up for the second rak'ah, he wouldn't pause, but he would begin recitation immediately. And so they use that as an evidence, the vast majority of the scholars to show that there's no isti'adha, right? The Prophet wouldn't stay silent, and he wouldn't say the isti'adha out loud, right? So therefore he wouldn't read the isti'adha, and he would just continue, and they would carry on in that way. And this was the opinion of Imam ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah, uh, and others from amongst the scholars, many scholars had this opinion. And then some of the scholars, the second opinion is obviously the opposite, which is that you read the isti'adha at the beginning of every rak'ah. So every rak'ah that you stand up in, the first thing that you're going to start with is what? A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim according to that second opinion. And this was the opinion of Al-Imam al-Nakha'i and Ibn Sirin, And it is one of the opinions in the Shafi'i madhab. It is one of the opinions of the Shafi'i madhab. And Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah said, that in our madhab, it is recommended that you say the isti'adha in every single rak'ah. Every single rak'ah. And this is the opinion that Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah favored. Ibn Hazm rahimahullah also said this. Again, one of the names that we haven't mentioned is Imam Malik. Imam Malik has an interesting take on the isti'adha in salah. Imam Malik rahimahullah says that the isti'adha is only for the, uh, for the nafal salahs. Only in nafal salah, in uh, optional prayer, or in qiyamul layl, you say, A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim But in your obligatory salah, so fajr, dhuhr, asr, maghrib, isha, any obligatory salah, the, the five daily prayers, you don't say the isti'adha. Right? Because he said the isti'adha isn't from the Qur'an. And, and we, we covered that already, right? All the scholars agree that the isti'adha isn't from the Qur'an. Right? The verse, A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim or that wording, isn't a verse of the Qur'an. The command to read it, yes, is in the Qur'an, 
But that word in A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajeem is not a verse of the Qur'an. So it's as if Imam Malik Rahimahullah said that it's not something that you should do in the obligatory prayers. Why does he allow it in the, in the optional prayers then? Why does he allow it in the optional prayers? Yeah, so that's one reason because obviously the optional prayer is slightly more lax, right? In terms of its uh, rulings, it's slightly more lax, right? So, you know, the Prophet would ride and he would read the optional salah, right? He would ride on his animal beast and he would read optional salah. But when he came to obligatory prayers, he would get down and he would stop and he would stand and he would pray. So, it's a bit more easier going, right? And so, as if Imam Malik said, okay, you know, the, the Nafil prayers and Qiyamul Layl because there's actually explicit hadith. In which the Prophet said the isti'adha and it's mentioned in the hadith in the wording that he said, A'udhu billahi min shaitan al-rajim in qiyamul layl. Right? In the hadith of Abu Sa'id, radiyallahu anhu, and we mentioned that last week, I think, or the week before. And so, therefore, based on that, he said it's something that you do in qiyamul layl, or it's something that you do in the optional prayers, and it's not something which you do in the obligatory prayers. And that's why, in the opinions that we've mentioned, Imam Malik's name doesn't come up. Right? Imam Malik doesn't have a view because Aslan he doesn't think that it's something that you should be doing anyway right? and so therefore his opinion isn't something which is mentioned and then we come into a, a related issue and that is do you read the isti'adha out loud or not right? is it said out loud or is it said silently the isti'adha so in the salah when you're about to pray do you say a'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim out loud and obviously this is like in, in um, congregational prayer, right? Does the imam say it out loud or does he say it silently? The vast majority of the scholars are of the opinion that it's said silently, right? And this is the opinion of the four, the four khulafa, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, Abdullah bin Umar, Ibn Mas'ud, Ibrahim al-Nakhari, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Ahmad, one of the opinions in the Shafi'i Madhab. And Imam Malik, when he says that it is allowed to do it in the optional prayers and so on, all of them say that it's something that you should do silently. Something that you should do silently. And then other scholars said, no, it's something that you do out loud. So just as, you know, like some of the scholars, and we'll come on to this, but some of the scholars are of the opinion that you say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim out loud, right? In the salah, and you've probably come across this when you're praying behind some imams. Even for Fatiha, they will say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim out loud. And then they will start with Surah Fatiha, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, right? And we'll come on to that, that issue later on. Um, but some of the scholars were of the opinion that you do the same with the isti'adha. So you'll say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajim, Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi, Rabbil Alameen. Right? You say it out loud. And this is uh, said that it is the opinion of uh, Abu Huraira, radiyallahu an, uh, and it's also one of the opinions in the Shafi'i Madhab. Right? Imam uh, Shafi'i in his book, Al-Um, Right, which is uh, the book that he wrote himself, Rahimahullah. He mentions this as a narration from Abu Huraira radiallahu an. And he said, Imam Shafi'i commenting on this, he said that you make the isti'adha out loud, and if you do it silently, then there's no problem. Right, so it's allowed to do both, but he said that it's something that you should do out loud. And that's why the uh, Shafi'i method has a third opinion, and that is that you have a choice. You can do it out loud, or you can say it silently. Right? And you can you have the choice between the two. Ibn Abi Layla, rahimahullah, was also one of the great scholars of the past. He said that both of them are good. Saying it out loud sometimes and saying it quietly sometimes, both of them are allowed. But the vast majority of the scholars said that it's something that you should say silently, and that is a stronger opinion simply because 
That is what the Prophet ﷺ used to do. Ibn Taymiyyah said that the only time you would do it out loud is to teach someone. So if you're leading the salah and you're with your children and you want to teach them what they should recite in salah, okay, you can do it out loud, right? Or if you have some new Muslims and you're teaching them how to pray and you're praying, you're leading them in salah, you can do it out loud to teach them. But the vast majority of the times it is something which you should do silently and that is the opinion of the vast majority of the scholars and it's also the opinion of the Qur'an. Right? The opinion of the Qur'an is that you make the isti'adha silently. That's in the salah. What about outside the salah? What about outside the salah? No. Outside the salah, they say you do it out loud. Right? So if you're reading the Qur'an, um, you know, you're just sitting down in the masjid at home and you want to read Surah Kahf, you want to read whatever you're going to read, then you say out loud. Right? The isti'adha and the basmala. Say it out loud and then you start. Right? And that's the preferred opinion amongst the Qur'an. Um, even though there is some difference of opinion, but it's the preferred opinion amongst the Qur'an and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Any questions on that issue? Uh, if the sisters have questions, please call out as well. Okay. Do you recite it before new surah in the first regard according to the position of reciting in every No, so... This the question is, do you recite it before every surah or just at the beginning, right? It's just at the beginning. So just with Fatiha. Once you've done it once, then you don't need to do it again. Even an opinion that says that you, you recite it in every raka'ah, it's only at the beginning of the raka'ah, right? Because the rest of it's all Qur'an. So whether you're reading Fatiha and then another surah, you're just moving from one surah to another, and that's all Qur'an. Right? There's a question at the back, yeah? Salaam to that. No, you don't have to recite it out loud. Okay, so the question is, the isti'ad that you have to read it aloud, like is it a must or can you read it silently? You can read it silently if you want, right, outside of the salah. And by the way, when we say out loud, we don't mean you have to shout it out loud, right? Not like, a'udhu billahi the whole world doesn't need to know. What it means is that you're reading it in an audible voice to yourself. Right? So if you're, a'udhu billahi right? so just that, so that you can hear it, that's what they mean, right? Not necessarily that. And it's really loud. Any questions? Yeah? Um, in regards to the hadith from Abu Harayn in Sahih Muslim and the fact that the Prophet wouldn't pause in the second rakah, how would people in the Salah know whether or not the Prophet had read it in the first rakah? And also, according to Imam Malik's opinion, this the other is not in the Quran. Um, okay, do that one more time because that just confused me, man. So, the first one is in the Hadith from Abu Hurairah and Sahih Muslim, and the fact that Prophet wouldn't pause in the second of Yeah. How would people in the Salah know whether or not the Prophet has read it in the first of so in the hadith of Abu Huraira where the Prophet wouldn't pause in the second rak'ah, how would they know that he read it in the first rak'ah? Uh, I mean, it's mentioned this hadith that mentioned that how the Prophet used to begin his salah, right? So he would read the du'a al-istiftah, the opening du'a, and then he would say, A'udhu billahi min shaitan al-rajim, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, and carry on, right? That's mentioned in other hadith, 
Right? So the point of this hadith, the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu sahih Muslim, is that in the second rakah he wouldn't pause like that as he did in the first. To show that you don't make that repetition, right? You don't have to repeat that again, but it, you just move on. Right? That's why I understood from the question. I don't know, I may have misunderstood. And what was the second question? Uh, in regards to Imam Malik's opinion regarding the Siyadah not being in the Quran, uh, the Darud isn't in the Quran either, so how do we marry between the two? That's completely unrelated. Uh, so the question is, Imam Malik says that the isti'adah is in the Quran, so therefore you don't have to read it, but neither is the durud. So how do you marry between the two? So um, we take the salah from the Prophet right? So the Prophet used to, uh, we, we know what he recited in every single part of the salah, right? The companions related that to us. And so therefore, based on that, that's how you should pray. So this is the opinion of Imam Malik rahimahullah, and he has like, you know, his opinion, and as we said, it's not the stronger opinion. The stronger opinion is that you do make this ti'adah. Whether it's the obligatory salah, or whether it's the optional salah, you make this ti'adah, because that's the general, right, the general nusus, um, right, the general texts from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, that's what they show, that you make the isti'adah. So as for Imam Malik rahimahullah, that's like the opinion that he, that he, that he favored rahimahullah, and as we said before, right, these are major scholars, even though there may only be one or two or three of them that held that opinion, that's something which they considered to be strong, right? And it's something which they considered um, to be the correct opinion, and Allah Azza wa knows best. And as the Prophet said to us, when a scholar makes ijtihad and he has an opinion based upon study, if he's correct, Allah will give him two rewards, and if he's incorrect, Allah will give him one reward, right? Because he still has the reward of the efforts that he put in. Not everyone's perfect, right? People didn't understand certain hadith or certain hadith didn't come across to them or maybe they thought certain hadith were weak or authentic wherever it may be they had their reasoning for the opinions that they formed and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best alright okay so now we're going to move on to um, the places in which the isti'adha is recommended right? when, where you should read the isti'adha and I mentioned this in summary form in the class notes by the way how many of you guys are on the Portal. Right. Is everyone here on the portal? Right, QuranicProgression.org. Some of you guys are looking blank, like what's on about? Okay. So, um, as we've said, like over the last couple of weeks, this class is also being streamed online. But even if you're if you're attending physically, I would recommend that you sign up to the portal. Oh. Time to go home. Manish. Uh, we, um, yeah, so you sign up to the portal QuranicProgression.org and the benefit of that is even if you're attending the lessons live, you have the recordings available, right? So I think, are they available in audio, podcast? They will be, inshallah. That's like, is that real, inshallah? Is that one of those? Okay, so uh, a, a podcast, so you can like just listen to the audios and the videos, so like these lectures, you can go rewind them and, and rewatch them and so on. Number three, um, the class notes. So for the isti'adah, there's class notes, right? And, and it's not as detailed, obviously, as what we're going through, but it gives you, like, the structure of what we're going to be going through. And, you know, we're going to do that, inshallah, throughout the whole tafsir of the Qur'an, right? And so that's just something for you to follow, and then you can add on to that, and you can go into it and so on. And, it just, and it's only one place, right? It's just there for you. And the best thing is it's free, right? We're not charging you anything. You don't have to pay, right? Which is, um, I know that's why most of you didn't sign up yet, because you're thinking they're going to charge us like a monthly subscription or something. So, um, no, it's free, alhamdulillah. So, you can go and, uh, it's something which I would recommend that you do anyway, 
because there will be also times when I'm not going to be in the country, right? when I'll be traveling, but this class will still take place online. So I'll be broadcasting live from wherever I am. And obviously in those weeks, you don't need to come to the masjid, but you can still, I mean, come to the masjid to pray, obviously. Or maybe you can, yeah, maybe you can show them on the screen here, uh, depending. But anyway, the point is that those, this class, inshallah, will never be cancelled, right? Until we finish the first academic year up until Ramadan next year, even if I'm not in the country or something else happens, whatever it may be, these classes will still, inshallah, be streamed. So I would highly recommend QuranicProgression.org. The portal is still like, under, under development, so it's something which, um, which I would you know, be patient, inshallah, but it's something which in the next few weeks will be up to scratch. And then you can also see basically what, so these people online who are posting their questions and their comments and so on, um, you know, you can see all of that as well, inshallah ta'ala. The other thing, uh, before I forget, is I have an Al-Maghrib course coming up uh, on the 12th to the 14th. Let me put this up here. The 12th or the 14th of October. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because this is about the Quran as well. It's called Lost in Translation. Where is it, Papa? University of Birmingham. Okay. Um, University of Birmingham, inshallah, 12th to the 14th of October, and that's on tadabbur. It's on how to contemplate the Quran. So we're doing tafsir. Tafsir is, you know, what, what did Allah say? What did the Prophet say? What did the companions say? What did the scholars of tafsir say? Tadabbur is a very personal thing. It's contemplation. How do you take all of that information that you're learning and use it in a way that increases your iman? It right? brings you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so it's a completely different type of Quranic study. Um, and inshallah, we'll go through over a weekend. It's a weekend course. Inshallah, if you go to almaghrib.org, you'll get all of the details. But it's something which I would um, highly recommend, not because you know, it's my course or anything like that, it's because it's a very neglected topic. If you ask the vast majority of Muslims across the world, what's tadabbur or how do you contemplate the Quran, they won't be able to tell you. Even though Allah in the Quran tells us, why don't they contemplate the Quran? Right? And the sad thing is, most of us don't even know what contemplation is. How do you even begin to contemplate the Quran? And the difference between tafsir and contemplation is tafsir is something that you do with a scholar. Right? You come to a class, you learn with someone that studied, you, know, you go through the classical works of tafsir. Contemplation is something that Allah says every Muslim should do. Why don't they contemplate the Quran? So you don't need to be a scholar. The whole point is that it's personal. Right? You're not teaching this to anyone. Right? You're not writing a book about this or giving a, you know, a lecture on this or teaching a course on this like I am. The point is that this is personally for you, for your family, for your children. Right? This is for you and your, um, your group of people. And it's to learn how to contemplate the Quran. So I just wanted to mention that as well. Okay, so the isti'adha. Where do we make the isti'adha? So we've done already a couple, so you know, we're just going like, to whiz through a couple of these. The first one is uh, obviously recitation of the Qur'an, right? So Allah Azza wa Jal, as we've mentioned numerous times, tells us to make the isti'adha before we read the Qur'an. Number two is when shaitan tempts you, when shaitan whispers to you, right? When shaitan incites you to do something, Allah Azza wa Jal says, make the isti'adha. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِمَّا يَنْزَغَنَّكَ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ نَزْغٌ فَاسْتَعِذْ بِاللَّهِ when shaitan comes and he prods you, he incites you, he whispers to you, then seek refuge in Allah. And this verse is in Surah Al-A'raf, verse number 200. Right? And similar to it is the verses in Surah Al-Mu'minun, verse number 97, 98. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you 
from the presence or from the incitement of the shayateen, right? from their whisperings. And I seek refuge in you, O Allah, that they should be present, that they should come and draw close to me. Right? And so this is also part of the isti'adah. And then you have a verse in Surah Al-A'raf, verse number 201, Allah Azza wa says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ اتَّقَوْا إِذَا مَسَّهُمْ طَائِفٌ مِّنَ الشَّيْطَانِ تَذَكَّرُوا فَإِذَا هُمْ مُبْسِرُونَ those who have piety, those who have taqwa, when shaitan incites them, whispers to them, they remember Allah and then they... MashaAllah. She's, she's, that's explanation of what I'm saying. Right? They are reminded of Allah and then they see the errors of their ways. Right? They see the errors of their ways. So Allah Azza is saying, when shaitan comes and he whispers to you, incites you to do some sin, you know, plants an evil thought into you, one of the easiest and greatest and most beneficial ways of removing that doubt, that seed of whisper, is just to say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajeem. Right? And now inshallah, when you say it, you'll know what it means. You know, you know the importance of that statement, the gravity of that statement. You know what it means to seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is that important, right? And that's why you don't have this thing, right? You know, it's become like fairly common in, uh, amongst us now where people have this, you know, like in Arabic, they call it waswasa, right? Some people just constantly in doubt, right? They constantly have shaitan coming and whispering to them. And they're always constantly in doubt in wudu, in salah, and so on. You don't get this amongst the companions because they understood the meaning of the isti'adha and its power. And so when shaitan would come, they would say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajeem, it was enough. The problem is now is that we say it so many times, but it doesn't have any benefit, right? It doesn't make an impact upon us because we don't really know what it means, right? We've lost touch with these adhkar and these du'as and so on and so forth. So that's the second time. So the first time is the Qur'an, right? Recitation of the Qur'an. The second time is when shaitan whispers to you or he wants you to do something, um, you know, sin or whatever. Then you say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajeem. Are we stopping for the adhan? Okay, sure. Let's, let's just um, we'll break for the adhan.
Uh, we have about 10 minutes, I think, to Salah. So I don't know if, uh, should we carry on or should we, does anyone have any questions? We don't know our Q&A today. I think we should just carry on. Right. Um, any sisters have any questions? You have to speak up, sorry. I can't. Yeah. So the question is, like, uh, if we're reading this ta'ala out loud to teach someone, I think the question was, what's the general ruling of doing that? Yeah. So when, when it comes to teaching salah, okay, so there's two things. Number one is um, you teach the salah outside of the salah, right? So if you're teaching someone to pray, but it's not the prayer time, so you're sitting down with them and teaching them what to read in each, every position. So in record, this is what you say, in sajda, this is what you say, number one. Or um, even if you're doing it with the actions, but it's not actually the salah, right? So you're going through the motions, but it's not necessarily that you're praying, you're just teaching them, right? So it's like the instruction. And then sometimes you do it whilst you're actually doing the salah as well. So if you're praying with young children and just say it's dhuhr or even if it's maghrib, one of the loud prayers, to read out the adhkar out loud, it's, uh, it's something which is permissible, right? To teach, right? With the intention of teaching someone. So Umar radiallahu and sometimes the dua or istiftah, which is the first dua that you make when you begin the salah. So for example, you know, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Sometimes in salah, in congregational salah, when he was leading the companions, he would read it out loud. And then he would say, I did it to teach people who don't know, right? Because you've always constantly got new people coming in, new Muslims, travelers, you know, Bedouin Arabs coming in and so on. And the only time and place that they would learn is through the salah, right? And Umar radiallahu anh, actually, if you look at his salahs, he would do this quite often. He would leave things or he would add to do things or he would read things out loud to teach people. So... It's something, inshallah, which, which is fine uh, for the purposes of teaching, inshallah. But, but as long as they know, obviously, then that once, once they start reading the salah, that it's something they should do silently. Anyone else? Okay, so number three. Right? So we did three, two places, two times when you make this ta'adha. Number three is when shaitan comes and he um, whispers to you about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes you doubt in Allah Azza wa Jal, or your worship of Allah, or your existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said in the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, which is collected in Bukhari and Muslim. He said, يَأْتِ الشَّيْطَانُ أَحَدُكُمْ فَيَقُولُ مَنْ خَلَقَ كَذَا مَنْ خَلَقَ كَذَا حَتَّى يَقُولُ مَنْ خَلَقَ رَبُّكَ مَنْ خَلَقَ رَبُّكَ فَإِذَا بَلَغَهُ فَلْيَسْتَعِدْ بِاللَّهِ وَلْيَنْتَهِ So he said, 
shaitan comes to one of you and he says to you, he says, who created such and such? And who created such and such? Until he keeps escalating and then he says, who created your Lord? Right? Who created your Lord? So when he does that, then say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem and stay away. So this hadith is actually a very uh, powerful, interesting hadith. Because the Prophet is saying to us, this is how shaitan begins. Right? Shaitan always starts off very small. The seed is always very small. And it's often something which you find acceptable. Or even if you don't find it acceptable the first time, the second, the third, the fourth time, it becomes acceptable for you. Right? So shaitan rarely goes for the kill. Right? He rarely goes into shirk you know, from like A to Z. Right? He doesn't go from zero to a hundred. But what he'll do is he'll come and he'll plant the seed and it'll be very small. Right? So like we have in the hadith of uh, the narration of Ibn Abbas when shirk first appeared on the earth right? in the time before Nuh alayhi salam. You, know, you had those righteous men who when they passed away, shaitan come and said, said to the people, why don't you create statues in their images just so that they will remind you of their piety and their goodness, and then you will be like them. Right? So it's a very you know, innocent kind of excuse. Right? That's how shaitan comes. And it's only once the people have bought into that concept that it starts to then escalate, escalate, escalate. Ibn al-Jawzi, in his book, Talbis Iblis, The Devil's Deception, right? which we have like a, I think in English is a summarized version that's been translated. He mentions a, a story that's... Uh, narrated from Al-Hasan al-Basri, rahimahullah. Uh, Al-Hasan al-Basri said that there was a man who uh, once came and he heard of a people who were worshipping a tree. And this was a man, you know, like on Tawheed. He understood that you worship Allah Azza wa Jalla alone. So he became angry when he heard that people are worshipping a tree. So he came to the tree with the intention of chopping it down, cutting it down. These are people performing shirk, they're worshipping a tree other than Allah. And he wanted to avoid this evil, cut it down. So as he approached the tree, shaitan came to him in the form of a man. And shaitan said to him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the tree to chop it down. Shaitan said to him, why? He said, because they're worshipping the tree besides Allah. Right? Other than Allah, they're worshipping the tree. So shaitan said to the man, right, he's in the form of a man. Shaitan said to this man, he said, even if they're worshipping it, how does it harm you? Right? If you don't want to worship it, leave it alone and let them do what they want. Right? Your business is your business, their business is their business. He said, no, because they're worshipping other than Allah. So then shaitan grappled with him, right, wrestled him. But the man overcame him, overcame shaitan. And he said, I'm going to chop the tree. So shaitan said to him, if you don't chop the tree, when you go home, you'll find two dinars, two gold coins. Right? Don't chop down the tree, you'll get two gold coins. And you'll find them under your pillow. So the man said, do you guarantee that? <laughs> Is that a promise? He said, yes. And if you don't find it, you come back to me. He said, okay. Left the tree, went back. Went back home, looked under the pillow, didn't find anything. Right? No gold coins, right? Like all promises of shaitan, they're false. Right? No gold coins. So the next day, he was determined to go back and chop the tree. So he went back to chop the tree. Shaitan came to him again in the form of a man. Shaitan said to him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to chop the tree. You're a liar. Right? You promised me two gold coins. Didn't let me chop the tree. Didn't give me the money. I'm going to chop the tree. Shaitan said to him, you can't. It's impossible for you. Can't chop the tree. Do what you want, you can't do it. So they grappled again, they wrestled, and this time Shaitan overcame him. Shaitan won. So he said to him, the man said to Shaitan, right, he said, how come yesterday I won and today you won? Right? It's the same, you know, the same people, same situation, same dynamics. How come you won? 
Shaitan said to him, because yesterday when you came to chop the tree, you came for Allah. Today when you came, you came for two gold coins. Right? That's why you won yesterday, but I won today. That's why it's impossible for you to take down this tree. And that's what Shaitan does, right? He plays with your intention, plays with your sincerity. Right? So when it's purely for Allah, and it's for Allah's sake alone, and it is pure, then that's where you have the most blessing, right? If you look at all of those ahadith, right? Um, you know, like the Prophet said, and you love someone, you You love someone only for the sake of Allah. Right? And the people who will be given shade on the day of judgment, two men or two people who love one another for only Allah's sake, they meet on that love, they depart on that love, right? Or one of the other people who will be given shade, he remembered Allah alone in privacy. No one else saw him, and he began to cry out of fear of Allah, and he's alone. So when it's purely for Allah, that's when it has the most blessing. But then shaitan comes and he takes that intention and he starts to twist it this way, manipulate it that way, add this, take away that, and that's when it starts to become difficult, right? And that's when shaitan starts to overpower you. And this is how shaitan works. He takes something which is seemingly good or innocent, and then he takes a step-by-step approach. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, just close that door. When shaitan comes with those kind of things, say, A'udhu Billahi Min rajim and stop it straight away. Don't let shaitan, don't open that door and give shaitan that opportunity to come in and to, you know, like open that door upon you. And then he just builds and builds and builds, right? And that's why you, um, you know, you often find that the scholars of Islam, even when they used to say that it's allowed for you to combine between worship and between a worldly interest, the worship element, the sincerity always has to take priority. So if you're going for hajj, but at the same time you're going and you know, you're, you're also doing business, right? You're taking a hajj group, or maybe you're going to sell something in hajj, or maybe you're you know, like taking money because you're doing sacrifices for people, you're slaughtering sheep for them, and they're paying you for that service, it's allowed, right? And Allah Azza wa allows it in the Qur'an. However, you have to be very careful, because that's when shaitan comes in, right? Because now your act of worship is open to the door of insincerity. And it's very easy for shaitan to come through that door, right? So now, you know, the first year it's okay, the second year it's okay, the third year you go for hajj, it's not about hajj anymore, it's because you're making money, right? And so the whole thing just flips on you. And that's why it's extremely important that when you have acts of worship, you preserve their integrity, right? You preserve them, their purity, their integrity, that sincerity that you should have in that act of worship is extremely important because once shaitan enters into it, it is extremely difficult to close that door again. That's why Imam Sufyan al-Tawiyya, rahimahullah, will stop with this. He used to say, مَا عَلَجْتُ شَيْئًا أَشَدُّ عَلَيَّ مِنْ نِيَّتِي right? I never combated, fought with anything more difficult than my own sincerity. Right? And this narration, he said, 30, 40 years, I fought with my sincerity. And he's one of the greatest scholars of Islam. Because every single day, every single moment, you have to be on guard and you have to be ready. Right? Because shaitan doesn't rest, so you also can't rest. We ask Allah Azza wa to give us sincerity and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saves us from shaitan and his whisperings and his traps. Jazakumullah khairan. We'll stop there. Next week, inshallah, I have no idea. What time is Maghrib? 6.45ish? Roughly, so probably 7.15 online.